You're listening to The Remorseless Podcast, a podcast designed to help you figure out who you are and how to show up so you can live the rest of your life without guilt in spite of wrongdoing, which is the definition of remorseless. From learning how to read the Bible and not feel like a no good, terrible sinner loser afterwards, to dealing with things like divorce, cancer, and losing people you love, including yourself, you will hear stories from incredibly interesting, normal, everyday people who have finally learned how to get through hard situations, be okay with who they truly are, and live without guilt in spite of wrongdoing. I'm your host, Beth Fisher, and I am so glad you're here. Get ready to be remorseless. It's Beth. Thanks for joining me. I thought we could dive into, you know, an easy peasy bit of scripture today called, wait for it, Job. Yeah, a lot of people, uh, my former self included, used to think it was Job because you guys remember how I'm always kind of like talking to you about, you know, if you can't pronounce the names of the Old Testament, just make them up. Job, Job, Bill, Peter, Mary. You know, I say that with um, a hint, obviously, of sarcasm, which hopefully some of you, most of you have picked up on by now is sort of my second language. But it's helped me. It's given me permission to engage scripture because before you guys, I had um, perfectionism tendencies. So I thought, man, unless I get this whole thing right, I'm going to hell. That is what I have um, come to learn many people fear Many people hear as they grow up in certain uh, church structures, home structures, constructs, right? Societal expectations like this is the way we do it and get on board or else. If then, then that, right? So it's like this transactional formula. And when we live in fear that we're going to mess up this transaction, most people are like, forget it. I'm out. Just whatever. I, I don't, I don't care. I can't deal with it. I'm, I'm never going to understand. And that's like the worst possible thing to do is to give up with anything, quite frankly, but for sure with the story of scripture. Now, hear me when I say this, I, again, came out of the womb questioning everything. I'm like, but why? That doesn't make sense. Why do I have to listen to these people? Why does this guy know, or this person know more so than, than I might know? Like, who died and made them like king of all kings, right? That's kind of my question. And then all of a sudden in my life, somebody goes, well, hey, Jesus is king of kings. I'm like, great, maybe he knows. Um, he does. My problem with landing on that as an answer is that it's not super clear. That's great. I, I have the faith to believe and, and to be unwavering in knowing that absolutely, Jesus is Lord of Lord, King of Kings, knows all of all. But he's not like here, right? Uh, visually, he's not able to be heard audibly unless, unless we engage. Um, you know, I, I've said time and time again, man, it would be just be really easy if God would just like tell me the answer. Just tell me straight up black and white. I am a very <laughs> left-brained, like don't live well in the gray areas, or at least I haven't traditionally. I have gotten to a point in my life where I've realized we're not supposed to have all the answers because one, it's exhausting. 
it is literally exhausting. There will always be something else to strive for, to accomplish, to get right, you know, to get 110% on a test that, you know, the max is 100%. I was that girl. Sometimes I still am and I have to just laugh at myself and go, what is the point of this? <laughs> like, seriously, you're never going to get it all right. None of us are. And that is what I want to invite you today to hear a little bit more about is the idea that, um, you know, there's a mistaken notion out there, right? That it's this idea that having strong faith is the same thing as feeling absolutely certain that the way our belief system is, is right. So, you know, like people will say, wow, that person is a person of such strong faith the way they get to God or the way they think or the things they've uncovered, man, that must be right. Cause look at that faith. We sort of equate those two things. Some of the wisest people in my life have had nil in terms of faith. And conversely, some of the most faithful people I've known in the course of my life go, yeah, I don't think it matters. I, I, I don't, I don't, I know I'm not right. I don't have the only answer. And so it's taken many years of falling down of Job experiences, which we'll get to in a second, for me to realize, I don't think that the Bible's a rule book. I don't. I, I used to, and I used to think, well, for a rule breaker, this is kind of a setup. <laughs> like, I, I am still the person that says, eh, I don't know, where did that rule originate? Like, whose idea was this? Um, why is that a good idea? I don't like the rules. The rules are kind of subjective and I don't deal well with subjectivity. Uh, I deal well with, you know what? This, this seems like a good idea. <laughs> if it's not, I'll learn from it. That I think, you guys, is what scripture invites us to. I think that's what God invites us to, is a journey. Not this instantaneous revelation that the, these are the rules, and if you abide by them, then you're good, like for the rest of your life. Because I got a question. What happens if we're good with all those rules for a season of our life? Maybe for 10 years, maybe for a decade. We're like, yep, nailed them. Got all of them right. Check, check, check. I am a rule follower. I'm nailing this thing. And then something comes along like suffering, divorce, illness, pandemic, loss of a loved one. What happens when those things come our way and we as humans don't have the internal fortitude any longer to be rule followers? What if we are like two giant middle fingers up to the rules at that point? Does that mean that God says, no, you're out, you're going to hell? And then what happens? Like for me, it was a ping pong match. My life has been sort of this back and forth. Like I feel really good and I am spiritual today and I'm following these rules and I'm a good person. And then something comes along in the course of my personal experience and my personal journey. And I go over here to the other side of the net. And I'm like, man, forget this. It, it's impossible. And if it's not impossible to deal with, then that must mean I have to ignore all these feelings of anger, of feeling completely ashamed at my behaviors or my reactions or like not allowing myself to be fully human, quite honestly. And I, that's not the story of scripture. We read many places where Jesus was inflamed at people's behavior, where he's flipping tables. We, Jesus was not an unemotional human. He felt so deeply about his friends and 
like Peter, lack thereof, right? Friends who say, yeah, I don't know the guy, I'm kind of out. I mean, Jesus came to earth to show us it's okay to be fully human. I can think of no other reason that Jesus came to earth except to say, you know what? This is the way. I am the way. And to give ourselves permission to to be on our own journeys towards God. That is the story of scripture, not a rule book. The story of scripture is God made us to be with us and that's it. And God is not, one of my favorite phrases, a helicopter parent. God's not a transactional God, nor is he a helicopter parent that just sort of says, you know what? I'm coming in here. I'm going to whirl on in. I'm going to tell you how it all is. I'm going to tell you what to do. And then all will be well. What kind of parenting is that? Helicopter parents are some of the most objectively annoying humans on the planet, at least from my perspective. I have watched time and time again, been around a lot of people in my lifetime, uh, good parents, bad parents, and every sort of kind of parenting in between. And one of the most annoying things that produces nothing other than elitism is for parents to pick up the phone and go, hey, why, why didn't you play my kid in the game? Hey, my, my kid couldn't do their homework last night because, you know, Bobby wasn't feeling well. Um, my kid, you know, he's going to get into an Ivy League, Ivy League school and he's going to be a, all these miraculous, wonderful things. He's going to play all these sports and do all these things and become somebody that makes me, the parent, feel good that I did a good job. Okay, one, ugh, puke. Okay, two, um, that's helicopter parenting, which is selfish. Do we think God is selfish? Do we think God is providing us a rule book to say, do this, do this, do this, get all the A's, play all the sports, go to these schools, accomplish these things, and then you're going to be great so that I, God, look good. Do we think that's the kind of God that we serve? Do we think that's the kind of father that God is, mother that God is, parent, parental figure, source of all that God is? I don't. I mean, maybe I used to, you know, as a Catholic girl who was like, all right, I got to figure this thing out, follow the rules, say the Hail Marys, do all the things, don't go to hell. But parenthetically, I'm still going out next weekend drinking six beers and listening to heavy metal. Okay. God is not a helicopter parent. God is not a transactional parent. And what happens is, you know, we get off of our tracks. We get off of our courses and we run away from God when we think that that is what we're dealing with. Instead of saying, let me look at the Bible as an invitation. Let me look at the Bible as ambiguous instead of concrete. You guys, if if you start to engage with the Bible in a way that is like an invitation to say, you know what, this thing, this book is ancient. It is ambiguous and it is diverse. It covers an awful lot of things about life from an awful lot of perspectives from an awful lot of people who were just people. They were people too, struggling with the same things that we struggle with, but just albeit in a very different lifetime. Like King David, I'm going to get this maybe close to being right. It's something like 3000 years ago when King David lived, right? So think about that. We have to say, I've got to bridge this gap between 3,000 years. So the things that King David, as an example, went through are very similar things to what we go through. Okay, think about it. Do you know anybody that in your life that has committed adultery? Have we read stories? Or maybe you even know somebody personally who's committed murder or put somebody on the front lines or was idle or, 
got too big for their britches. You know what I mean? All of those things are very human characters, uh, characteristics. So what we have to do is say, all right, I have to bridge this gap so that I can like relate to this guy. Because again, how many people do you know? Like, ah, I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to read scripture because it was like forever ago. Nothing is new under the sun as we read about in Ecclesiastes. So the stuff that David was going through or that anybody in scripture went through are things that today we still, as our human condition, go through. Okay, so it's not, it's not new. So we have to say the Bible is ancient. It happened 3,000 years ago. Beyond that, we don't, time doesn't necessarily matter. What does matter is that it covers a wide spectrum and that there is, the difficulty is to say, I have to apply something that happened 3,000 years ago to 2020 and I can't quite get there on my own. Unless you give yourself permission to say, maybe there's not one way. Maybe there's not one answer I'm trying to get to. Maybe it's the process. Maybe it's the journey. Maybe it's the gray area in between that a lot of people and places and churches aren't so comfortable with, that we sometimes aren't so comfortable with and saying, ah, I don't know, I, I feel very angsty here because I haven't figured it out. I don't know what the answer is. And I'm here to ask you, what if we're not supposed to know? Like, what if we're not supposed to know with 100% certainty what the answer is? Because what if God is big enough to say, I am a little bit more than 100%. You know, I'm not a black and white God. I am a God who encounters all, encompasses all, engages with all. And since we clearly know we are all different, you know, there's not one way. So to try and force feed people one way into thinking about scripture or one way into suffering like Job suffered, it's it's absurd. It's kind of asinine if you think about it to go, yeah, well, you should do that. And again, it's when I start to throw up my two giant middle fingers and say, I, I can't anymore. I can't. Because that means that if I'm listening to you, by default, I might not be listening to God. And I'm going to tell you guys every day of the week, I'd rather listen to God than another human. I love people. I engage with people. I am in the moment with people. And I, I hear people now more so than I honestly ever have. But I also hear them from a place of their questioning too. Good. That's what I say. Let's bring all of our questions to the table and say, let's just love each other as we give each other room and space to have varying ideas and different conclusions that aren't conclusive. Okay, can we have, please, conclusions that aren't conclusive and feel okay about that? You know, the spiritual disconnection that people feel today, right, um, it's because of our expectations. We are expecting or have been told to expect that the Bible is the end all be all. It is the Bible itself, like perfect and holy. And okay, yes, it is because it's the word. Jesus is the word. Jesus is perfect and holy. No doubt about that. But what if in Jesus's perfection and holiness and infinite wisdom, he says, you're not supposed to know. You're supposed to grow and engage and be on this nonstop quest for wisdom. Like, to, to be better, to, to question your own former thoughts. What if that is the invitation of the Bible instead of getting to an answer? I think we'd all be better off for it. I think more people would um, pick it up without fear of 
guilt, remorse, shame, uh, punishment, suffering, right? All the things. A lot of people will say, I don't want to read the Bible because I don't want to know what I've done wrong. The Bible's only going to tell me all what a crappy person I am. No, no. I, I encourage you guys to get in there and dive in and say, you know what? Um, when we read the Bible, we have to bridge that distance, but we still need to respect it as well. To use our discernment and go, you know what? It's not 5,000 years ago. It's not 3,000 years ago. What it is is today. And if we're paying attention, we can't just turn a blind eye to that, right? So I want to just continue to encourage you guys that um, I believe that God knows best what sort of writing we need, what sort of time in our journeys. You'll hear me say this too when people say, where should I start if I want to read the Bible? Should I start in Matthew? Should I start in Genesis? Like, how do I do it? And my answer is, however resonates with you. Pick it up, open it up, and just read. Because to me, I think that God responds to each of us in a way that He knows, that God knows we need to be responded to, and it's not going to be the same. Like, there is no trick way to get to him other than to be in relationship. Relationship trumps all you guys. So the Bible was written by various writers, okay? Multiple people who lived at different times and in different places and under different circumstances with different purposes. So in the book of Job, which again, we're we're diving into right now, easy peasy little book, 42 chapters, okay? It's, It's a hefty read. It's a big lift to read Job which is kind of why I want to start there, because I think, yeah, yeah, why not just dive into all the suffering? Let me tell you something. Job is not a historical book. Job is 42 chapters of mostly poetry. The first two chapters of Job and the last, like, 11 verses are narrative, but the rest in between is poetry, and the rest in between is relationship, <laughs> mostly of Job's three friends, which to me, I think there was, like, a queen bee. Um, I have to look for a reference these guys' names. So, um... Again, Bob, Bill, Mary, Pat, Joe, whatever's easiest to pronounce for you guys. But their real names, um, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. Okay? So, you know, most people know the book of Job as just this book about suffering, how to endure suffering and how to say, you know what? This must be what I deserve. Because those three guys that I just spoke to you about, Job's friends, kind of went to him after all of these really bad things about Job started happening or started happening to him. And they're like, dude, what'd you do? What'd you do? So the question about the book of Job is one of essentially, how can such a really good and blessed kind of helicopter parent, right? I think that's maybe what Job was. It says right here in the first couple chapters of Job um, that he was blameless and upright and he was wealthy and he came from the East. Okay. So that in and of itself indicates that he was really wise because wise men came from the East. So Job was like this guy who had it all. He had money, he had wisdom, he had all of the earthly successes that people will define. This guy had 10 kids. They probably all went to like Ivy League schools, right? So The thing is, he had it going on. Job had all of this stuff going for him until um, one day there was like this divine council of the gods, like a heavenly board meeting. And Satan, I'm I'm pronouncing it like that, Hasatan actually is what it's called. So we always think, many people think, the book of Job is like between Satan and God. Satan kind of tempts God. Hey, 
you know, the reason Job loves you so much, God, is because he's got all, all the stuff going on for him in the world. But take away that stuff, and then we'll see how much he loves you, God. That's what people will say Satan tempted God with. Hasatan is the actual right reading of it, and Hasatan's a title. Has, ha, I think, means the. Satan is just somebody who is an adversary, okay? So, yeah, of course, it's spelled the exact same way Satan is spelled, which doesn't come along until much later in Judaism. So don't think of, like, this is pitchfork devil going up against God on the throne, okay? That's not it. This is basically saying, um, I am an adversary, and I am being an adversary right now and kind of making a point to God saying, yeah, okay, your boy down here, Job, he might say all the right things about you and feel good towards you right now, but you take away that stuff and then we'll see how he feels. And for whatever reason, we don't know. Again, ambiguity inside of scripture. We don't know why God all of a sudden at this uh, kingdom council was kind of saying, hey, Job is blameless and, and Job speaks highly of me. We don't know why. He was kind of like bragging on Job to Hasatan. And he's like, yeah, we'll see. So when the first things happen to Job in his life that go kind of sideways, right? God basically tells Hasatan, have at him, but just don't hurt him. That's like the first round of this, uh, 42 chapters. And that's what, that's what we see. He loses his 10 kids. He loses everything around him. Physically, he's okay at first, but he loses all of this stuff. And as he, as he starts to kind of see all these things dwindle, his earthly possessions and successions and kids and all of these things are just being taken from him, he still doesn't curse God. And Hasatan goes back and there's, there's a discussion. And then we see Job all of a sudden um, has boils from head to toe, right? And that is when his friends start to go, dude, what did you do, right? And so there's always this correlation. I think it could also perhaps be called a little bit of the prosperity gospel between people on this earth that have everything from the outside going for them. Perfect kids, perfect life, boat, yacht club, Ivy League. I don't even know. Shirts, shoes, the puffy hair, like the annoying things that people think I'm better than somebody else. You know, when we start to say those people have it going on, that must equal God's favor upon them. Then what does that mean for the people that don't have those things? It's the dumbest correlation we can ever make. And it's not ours to make, quite honestly, you guys. It's just not. So, you know, the point of this whole book is that um, we can have suffering and we can have endurance in suffering and we can still not be patient in that. Job like, let God have it in this book, right? He questioned him. And at the end of the book, in those last narratives, remember we talked about how the first part of Job and the last part of Job are narrative, and then everything in between is poetry, okay? So if you really want to understand the framework, a framework is basically as it, as it you know, infers. It's the beginning and ending. It's sort of the bookends, right? The bookends for my day. Side note, coffee, wine. And everything that happens in between is like this whirlwind often. Do you guys feel like that in the course of your days? Like, okay, I'm going to start it out. I'm going to hit the ground running. I'm going to pet myself up. I'm going to have coffee. And then all of this stuff goes to, you know, where in the middle. You're just like, what in the holy, what, what is happening right now? It's a hot mess in here. And then at the end, 
over multiple glasses of wine in my case sometimes at the end of the night, um, I sit and reflect and I just go, okay, does all of this, am I supposed to have it all figured out? I hope not, because then if it's all figured out, that means there's nothing to do the next day. But here's the thing, there's a lot of suffering that goes on in the middle of the book of Job. And there's a lot of suffering that goes on in the middle of our lives. And there's a lot of suffering that goes on in the middle of our weeks and our days. None of this is easy, you guys, none of it. But what if instead we viewed God not as a transactional, if I'm perfect, then God will re- uh, give me rewards and he will love me more and he will uh, see me more. What if instead we took the approach that there's nothing that we can do to make God love us any more or any less? We don't have that power. We don't have the power to make God love us more. But what I'm, in, I'm I guess, suggesting and encouraging for you right now is to get to know God better. Like, don't you want to know this parental view of God? Don't you want to know a selfless parent? I mean, how many selfish parents do you know? (laughs) I know a ton. I see it all the time where they put their kids through so much grief so that they look better. God doesn't need to look better. He's not concerned with how he looks. He's concerned that we get to him in an authentic way that resonates with us in a way that isn't him force-feeding and saying, do all these things, and then we're good, we're solid. Because what does that mean? God can make us do whatever he wants to do. I mean, not that he doesn't. Don't hear me when I say that. He's not like this, you know, we're not puppets on a string here. But what I'm saying is God is has infinite power. But because he also has infinite wisdom, he's wise enough to know that helicopter parenting and transactional relationships are stupid and selfish And don't do anything for us as the recipient of that behavior. Instead, what God says is, I'm going to, like a good parent, help you you to believe that you're capable. Help you to believe that you can get through difficult times. Help you to have faith that is not in direct correlation or response to how much success in the world you have. To believe that you matter, no matter how many pairs of shoes that you have, or no matter how many titles you have, or no matter how much money you have, like none of that matters. God is wise enough and loves us enough to show us the way. To say, like he did in the book of Job, I'm not bringing suffering upon you so that you think you're bad. The whole point of the book of Job is to say, this is not a transactional relationship. And there are so many other correlations. And I want to I tell you something, too. I say the whole point of the book of Job. That's from my perspective. There are scholars who will still to this day debate the book of Job. There's more than one way to read it, just like there is scripture, just like there's more than one way to show up in life. There's more than one viewpoint, guys, more than one. And so God knows that, right? He knows the way that we will respond. He knows the way that will resonate with us the most. Go that way. Hear those words. Show up in your life in those means and those behaviors and those ways that mean the most to you. And don't question it. And for sure, don't succumb to somebody else's ways just because you think that's the right way. They don't know either. (laughs) Okay, none of us do. God knows. So be in relationship with God. Strive to become more like God every day on your journeys. And know that patience and endurance are not the same thing. We go to the book of James. James is all about endurance in the New Testament, but we can have endurance and not be patient. 
I mean, I've endured a lot of things in the course of my life and not been patient through them. It's like running a marathon. I can endure a marathon, but I'm not patient. Like a mile 15, I'm like, when in the hell, when is this thing over, right? Like, ah, 11 more miles, this math is making me crazy. You can endure something and not be patient. It's okay to question God. It is okay to question your suffering. It is okay to say, I hate this right now. Help me see a way. Help me see a way. And sometimes, like Job's friends, um, they might mean well. They might come from a place of being well-intended, but they might not have it right either. At the end of the book of Job, I'll leave you with this. God rebukes Job's friends. He's like, you three idiots kind of missed the point. Even though Job questioned me, even though he pushed back on me, he didn't accept me for somebody I'm not. That's what God says is I'm not a transactional helicopter parent God. And Job's like, nope, I never thought you were. I went down kicking and screaming that I didn't do anything wrong to deserve this suffering, but I also know who you are, God. And I know my friends didn't. So I'll say a prayer on their behalf and let's just call it good. And life goes on. You know, it's about exile. It's about the exile of of Babylon, right? And the exile of the Jews and all of these things. We sometimes are living in exile within ourselves because we don't allow us ourselves the freedom to think differently, to push back on God, to believe that he knows above all else who we actually are. I mean, he made us, right? Be who you were created by your God to be. That's enough. It will always be enough. So go forth, my friends. Be remorseless in your pursuit. Remorseless, again, means without guilt, in spite of wrongdoing. It's okay to do wrong. It's okay to suffer. It's okay to question. It is okay to be who you are. Go about all those things and don't for one second get stuck on your journeys and live in guilt because of them. Okay, thanks for joining me. I will see you guys next week and be remorseless on your journeys. Thank you so much for showing up and joining us this week on the Remorseless Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate it or share it with your friends because, you know, that would help too. If you're not yet on the newsletter list, come on over to BethFisher.com and jump on it. Because while you're there, you can also check out more about how to be remorseless. My book is there as well as the companion remorseless workbook that provides actionable tools to help you show up every day and be who you were created to be. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next week.